When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, From the Backburner Podcast is sponsored by Birch Barrel. Asado style grilling, live fire cooking at its finest. Um, the strange looking, it's it's a barrel on a tripod um, will actually change uh, everything about your outdoor cooking. Uh, I'm telling you, it's probably one of the most innovative things I've ever cooked with. It's It's so much fun to just do different things with one grill. I mean, I can go from smoking to searing to roasting to baking. Uh, it's pretty incredible. And then on top of it to try a bunch of different woods and coals and, and you name it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty spectacular. Um, if you're in the market for one, visit birchbarrel.com, uh, check them out. They've got not only the birch barrels there, they've got a whole line of accessories. Uh, the stockman's gloves, uh, uh, the pan lifter, all kinds of stuff. And then on top of that, they've got knives, they've got seasonings. It's, it's, it's just a complete, uh, setup. Um, anything you could want, uh, birch barrel, you can use my promo code B U R N E R at checkout for a 10% discount. That's B U R N E R at checkout for a nice 10% discount. Um, go check out birch barrel. Hello everyone from the back burner podcast is back. I'm your host, Jonathan Odell. And I am back on the road again. I am, I am sitting here in Fort Collins, Colorado, um, uh, attending some meetings for my, my other day job, uh, aside from this. But uh, I, I'm really excited because I have uh, a guest I, I certainly wanted to have on for a little while. Uh, he, he and I spend uh, at least a few days every year um, in the same cities for, for particular reasons. Um, we're, we're actually a, a pretty long way off from dove season at this particular moment, but uh, it's coming. So uh, what better thing to talk about between uh, myself and my next guest uh, than doves and, and probably a few other topics and, and related offshoots and, and chasing rabbits down rabbit holes as we go. Uh, everyone, please welcome uh, my friend and colleague, Mr. Owen Fitzsimmons. Hey, yeah. Thanks <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Hey, Owen, um, why don't you tell everyone uh, who you are, what you do, all that other fun stuff. Sure. Um, I am the Webless Migratory uh, Game Bird Program Leader for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. And that's always a title that uh, kind of throws people for a loop. They're like a, a, a what? <laughs> so uh, the way I like to explain is Webless is uh, in the migratory game bird world, Everything's broken up into waterfowl, which have webbed feet, and all the rest of the birds, which is what I work with. And uh, and like like uh, he already mentioned, you know, doves are the, kind of the big one. Um, that's where I spend ninety percent of my time. Yeah, we've got the the webless birds. So let's, let's go through a few. We've got doves, pigeons, uh, cranes, rails, snipe, gallinules, gallinules, woodcock, woodcock. Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, uh, and maybe a few, well, rail, what, did we say rails? We said, we said rails, rail? yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, I, of course, I can't hunt them out in and Arizona. So, we don't allow that, but. Right, and so coots, I guess, are technically in the waterfowl right. side of things. 
They're they're like the in between bird in, <laughs> because of those funky feet they have. Yeah. They have they have like webbed wings, not yeah. full webbed feet. Wow. Lobed. Yeah. I, I always I always like Owen's other title of of Dove program yeah. manager for Texas. That's yeah. that's probably the ninety percent of the yeah. job for Owen, or at least the, the constituents know him as that. So yeah. that that's a little easier than than webless migratory game bird it is coordinator it is you know and as much as i love doves uh there's a lot of a lot of other birds i want to work with you know yeah. that i'd like to spend more time on but being in texas you know doves are <laughs> doves, doves are, are, king. Are, are king yep doves are king so yeah owen and i are actually here in fort collins because we're attending the national dove task force which he and i are both part of and uh yeah this is this is a, a chance for us to represent kind of the the broader country at, at large uh, with regard to doves uh-huh. uh, as it were across all four flyways and all three management units uh, for doves in, in uh, at least the lower 48. Uh-huh. Um, and that, it sounds a lot more extreme than it is, the task force. No, no, we should have badges like, <laughs> like we're official members of the dove task force. You know, black, I, I want, I want like the FBI style flip badge yep, with the, the yep. ID card and the black jackets. Badge. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We should have black Suburbans. They should issue us those. <laughs> National Dev Task Force, we're here to check your bag limits. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, um, so Owen, um, actually, the last time I saw you here in Fort Collins um, was pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of the go-between between uh, our good friend Hank Shaw and you mm-hmm. um, to get you on a podcast. He had called me. He's like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, he was working on season two of hunt gather talk and, uh, uh, was wanting to record a dove podcast and he called, he's like, man, who should I, who should I talk to And I said, I got the guy for you. You know, I said, you should, you should talk to Owen. Uh, you know, Texas has got more Columbids than anyone else and, and white wings and, and uh-huh. <laughs> are, are more, more of your life than I think about anything. So yeah. I said, yeah, let's, let's do that. And, and actually that podcast was, uh, finale. You had, uh, you and Jorge, yeah. uh, from, uh, Upland Jitsu, right. um, were right. on, but, uh, it was, it was a really great, uh, conversation. Um, and it started off with the, the grand conspiracy. Um, so for any of the listeners out there who, who, uh, who hadn't heard that podcast yet or whatnot, I, I actually want to dig deeper into the, the controversial background and history of doves. Uh, you know, every, everyone thinks doves are like, Oh, you know, it's pretty ubiquitous. You know, we shoot them all over the place and all that, but there's a, there's a dark history, uh, to, morning doves and, or doves in general. And I don't, yeah, I didn't country. even know that much about it. Yeah. And, and yeah. <laughs> so, um, there, uh, if we go back in time, um, to some of the, the early days of, of conservation when they were trying to stamp out market hunting and stuff and, and all that there, there's a gentleman by the name of William T. Hornaday, uh, the name, you know, should sound familiar. He's, he's considered one of the fathers of conservation today, but, um, how I actually came across this was, was in my own readings, 1950s, 1960s federal aid reports uh, about species and stuff going on, uh, things going on. This book kept, I, I kept seeing the citation for this book. And I was like, what is this? Our Vanishing Wildlife by William T. Hornaday. I, I got to get it. And so I think I found it on eBay at some point. And it's, it's an original first edition. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't have the, uh, I've actually seen one that has the, uh, uh, 
the dust jacket still on it. It, had, it used to have a very colorful dust jacket, but uh, I got this one. And as soon as I got it in, like I couldn't put it down the moment I started reading it because uh, this book is filled from a different time in America for sure. Uh, not only for conservation, but different mindsets, different things. And William T. Hornaday was actually a really, really interesting character with uh, a lot of good and a lot of bad. But um, so in it, um, at least this part, the, the part we're gonna we're gonna get to right now with regard to doves. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of chapters that uh, really stand out when you're just reading the chapters, um, the the titles of what the chapters are. And um, so please forgive me. I'm actually gonna read directly from this book. This is not uh, uh, anything but um, uh, that. So this book is actually from 1913. So the uh, First is chapter 11, which is slaughter of songbirds by Italians. Uh, lots of Italian hate in the early 1900s. <laughs> um, and then uh, chapter 12, uh, destruction of songbirds by Southern Negroes and poor whites. So we have, uh, you know, some, some negativity towards <clears throat> the Italian immigrants and, uh, um, Poor whites and and African Americans, in, uh-huh. in, uh, primarily at that time, probably would have been the South. So, uh, wow! I mean, like those, those kind of jump right off the page at you. And, and there's a lot of whole other interesting things in this book, but um, and and we'll talk maybe a little bit more about William T. Hornaday and, and some of his other interesting ones. But um, I wanted to get uh, I wanted to get Owen's take on this paragraph in particular, just, just sitting here a hundred and some years <laughs> later, uh, after this, this paragraph was written. And so this is actually on, on page one Oh six, which is one of those chapters. Um, this is the second chapter of, of, uh, of the destruction of songbirds. And so um, I haven't read this. So this is brand new for me. <clears throat> so this is a little <clears throat> bit into the text, but, um, he points out these, uh, 25 States that are allowing dove harvest at this time, 1912, 1913, Arizona had just become a state in 1912 so it's probably why it's not listed in this list of 25 but texas is Mm -hmm. uh you know you'd be happy to know that the texas was killing doves long before the migratory (laughs) bird treaty act showed up but this sentence is is rather interesting for this paragraph uh so this is his perspective on on uh, uh dove hunting at this time the killing of doves represents a great and widespread decline in the ethics of sportsmanship uh in the 26 states named a great many men who call themselves sportsmen indulge in the cheap and ignoble pastime of what is that potting weak and confiding doves it is on par with the sport of hunting english sparrows in a city street which apparently was something they were doing at that time. Uh, Of course, this is to a certain extent a matter of taste, but there is at least one club of sportsmen into which no dove killer can enter provided his standard of ethics is known in advance. Wow. (laughs) That was dove hunting a century ago or the perspective (laughs) on dove hunting a century ago. Wow. Um, Yeah. It sounds like he either thought it was too easy or, or just not worthy of a someone of his 
stature? I, I don't know. No, I, like honestly, as you, as you read through this, you know the 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 chapter on Italians now. Remember, you have to remember this is you know very early 1900s, so we've actually just gotten past the the Nina laws, the No Irish Reply, mm-hmm. like kind of that because the Irish were coming over since you know pre Civil War. I mean, mm-hmm. 1830s, 1840s. My relatives, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah mine too. So uh, you know, at that point, you know, Irish culture was kind of you know adopted into American culture, I think at this point. And this is when, this is when, you know, kind of the early origins of of American history, if you kind of want to see it from that perspective. So the Irish were given the jobs that nobody wanted, police officers, firefighters. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really the the tradition that you even still see today, like in Boston and New Mm -hmm. York and and a lot of the East coast, um, really, you know, strong Irish roots and connections into these kind of public service jobs. Um, The Italians came, and it was, oh my gosh, they're, you know, the worst people in the world. And that's where, you know, the whole idea of the cops being Irish and the mobsters being Italians. Right. I mean, this is kind of that, that early, you know, mix it up, the mob and mafia right. start. And <laughs> even though the Irish had their own mob and mafia as well. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, most of the cops, the beat cops and stuff like that were, you know, Irish immigrants or, or you know, coming mm-hmm. out of Irish families. So, so yeah, there was a lot of hate on, uh, the Italians, and, and he actually talks about in this in this book how you know if you go to Italy, it was it was common practice in Italy they were shooting all kinds of birds that were migrating mm-hmm. uh, into Italy, and it didn't matter what they were. I mean, you know, he he was complaining because you know either the you know the birds are too small to even be like a morsel of food, or you know, I mean, it's just kind of want wanton killing and right. and waste and things like that. But it translated into a lot of the immigrants who moved here to America. They were like you know, we're shooting, you know, all kinds of stuff. Now, now, of course, at this particular moment in time, we're just past the decline of the passenger pigeon. Right. You know, the passenger right. pigeon now is, you know, I on mean, the, relegated. The it's, it, yeah. I mean, yeah. last one, you know, died, what, 1930 in the I, zoo. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're past the major shooting of, of passenger pigeons, which was kind of an acceptable sport at that time. But um, Heath Hen is gone. Um, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> a number of number of species are, are pretty much you know on the decline or decay. But yeah, the Italians were just you know they would go into the countryside and and because they they were eating these things. Yeah, you know it, it wasn't like just oh you know it, it, I guess maybe in a sense it might have been just wanton slaughter for the sake of doing it. It's just different game, right? But at the, in the same token, they were they were likely eating it because in in that era of market hunting and and that early 1900s, I mean. Oh my lord! You know the <laughs> market gunners and stuff. There yeah. was you couldn't. I mean, it was we were. It, I think if you could imagine the East Coast markets, the meat markets probably looked a lot like what you see probably in in markets in third world countries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who are just they're bringing field meat and bush meat. Well, there, there were train cars full of oh yeah birds, mm-hmm. which yeah, yeah, it's unimaginable. <laughs> You know, you look at the pictures yeah. of the punt guns and all yeah. the, you know, just, it's crazy. Yeah. And I think, I think he was, you know, his particular view, you know, was that view of, you know, he was, he was certainly sliding certain portions of Americans mm-hmm. who were there, you know, uh, it, and he was adamant about, it. I mean, he, he actually was very vocal about a lot of things. He, he was opinionated, uh, on certain things, good, bad, or <laughs> indifferent, but, um, you know, he, 
yeah, I mean, he just he kind of thought doves of as a as a stature of a songbird, yeah. and of course, it, you know, as you and I've I think you've you've talked about this before too, but you and I've talked about it, how after the passenger pigeon disappeared or you know was was you know going towards extinction, mm-hmm. the changes that were happening in America caused the rise of mourning doves mm-hmm. because they probably weren't at the same capacity like that we see today. Right. Right. That's, that's what, uh, the kind of the, the thought is, is that we, as we expanded westward and created these ag fields with windrows around them, we basically created the perfect morning dove habitat yeah. across the U S and that's like, I think going back in, in time, I mean, obviously not the industrialized farming we see today, but it was all small family farm. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't, they didn't have, super mega i mean i'm sure there was a few large ranches you know things like that but most of the families who made farming a practice pretty much were creating ideal habitat for a number of species Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that i think we saw pretty much into the 80s yeah the 1980s when when the farm bill um you know was was created yeah then you get the mega farm but it it is you you basically were creating like that edge habitat yeah across the the landscape you know Yeah. In massive quantities. In massive quantities. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it, to me, I just, I wanted to kind of get your take on that because sitting here a hundred years after, you know, this was kind of written about, you know, your sportsman's ethics and those kind of things are, are, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're a, you're a piece of trash, you know, for, <laughs> for shooting birds like this, for shooting doves. And, you know, I mean, how many, it's the, the most, hundreds of thousands yeah, of hunters. The most or, popular game bird in the U.S. It, yeah, today. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, and you guys did touch on on the, the fact that, you know, some of this perspective from this time frame uh, had led a lot of states, um, even still to this day, do not hunt doves. And part of it goes all the way back to this era mm-hmm. of the early 1900s. So we have all of New England. We have New York and New Jersey. Uh, and Michigan at this point are the, the only states that don't hunt doves. Yeah. Um, now, in the past, what, 10, 15 years or so, we've seen a few other states that didn't hunt them have added seasons. Yeah. So Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for the most part, most of the rest of the country the was, was hunting. Yeah, Because yeah. Yeah. the Southwest is we're we're the harbingers of right. of all things that are doves right. in terms of you know quantity and and excitement and yeah um because i think it's always been a part of the southwest kind of culture i mean i you know i i know arizona and i mean arizona was shooting doves long before we were even a state mm-hmm. um you know that's that's been going long before the migratory bird treaty act i know you know i mean that's yeah. Texas, I I don't even know if you know you can even pinpoint when it started. No, I don't think anybody can. I you know white wings we can. Yeah, uh, you can. There's a really interesting history there with just you know, and I can see it in our regulations. If you go back to Parks and Wildlife back in the old uh, uh, the old days, where we start to we have to start regulating these things because people are you know they used to be just creeping into the northern extended white wings range, just like in southern Arizona, southern Texas. We had four counties in the lower uh, southernmost tip of Texas that had white wings. And at one point in the early 1900s, or like around the turn of the century, we estimate now there were probably, just in those four counties, somewhere between four and 10 million white wings yeah. in those four counties. Yeah. And then people realized is that, you know, as people moved down there, started clearing land for agriculture, 
and kind of kind of develop in the area all of a sudden they realize there's this huge wave of birds that comes by every fall that is, they're easy to shoot and they're fun to shoot and they taste good and yeah and all of a sudden they're just they're just wiping them out uh, well, and as we were talking about earlier at dinner i mean that's kind of coinciding with the, the history of arizona mm-hmm. uh obviously yuma yuma was an important creation back in the territorial days even um obviously the movie 310 to yuma i mean we had a territorial prison uh even before next new mexico was a state i mean we were kind of a key point because the wagon trains the only way to cross the colorado river without going all the way around it you know you'd have to go pretty much where we are now in fort collins Mm -hmm. you know imagine you know you're you're trying to come from oklahoma or whatever you have to arc all the way up into northern almost you know wyoming and cross over the rocky mountains yeah (laughs) you know to try and make it over to california otherwise you could come the southerly route and yuma was the place that you could cross because of the pinch point on the colorado river there yeah i didn't know that yeah i mean that's that's the whole reason why yuma was there i mean right. yuma was established <laughs> there was all those tribes that were out on the colorado river and the river was really wild and oxbowy and i mean it it has a huge vast kind of floodplain up there mm-hmm. um from centuries of, of being you know the american nile river essentially but there's two large pieces of granite uh there at the river that was a kind of a choke point for the river. The river could not get around, you know, no matter how many times it dug or (laughs) what it had to go between those two rocks. And so it was the perfect place to build a bridge. And well, if you're going to be here, might as well set up a town because everyone's got to come across here and you know, let's, let's build a town, build a prison. Let's build a railroad. Let's, yeah, yeah. it was, it was kind of that key central spot the happening spot. Yeah. Um, you know, and then eventually, you know, is discovered to be, you know, incredibly fertile for, uh, growing all manner of, of plants and now lettuce throughout the winter, (laughs) which everyone, anyone who enjoys a salad in the winter, it came from Yuma. Um, I had no idea. Like I need to go, I need to come visit. Oh, you do. You do. Like we, we need to have the exchange for the dove exchange program where you come to Yuma. Cause I've been wanting to go to, like, I need to see Texas on opening day. Yes. Like I, I absolutely do. You know, the problem is that that's, that's the super bowl for each of us. Right. Right. We work all year to get to September 1st. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it was finally, it's like oh finally some relief but it's there's a there's a lot of effort that goes into to making it there but then you know it's it's are you going to be the hero or the villain on on, on opening right, day is right. it going to be a good good opener or, or a bad one whether whether or not uh withstanding right so well i can get you over i mean on, on a good year we can hunt all the way through january yeah, yeah we're <laughs> We got plenty of doves, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, kind of one of the key things is, is because it's all, that's why Yuma is pretty cool. It just, you know, it's, it's all that sediment from the Colorado Mm -hmm. in the floodplain developing there, super nitrogen rich soil. If I were to take someone from Iowa, right. Who knows what nitrogen enriched soil looks like. It's black. And you, you take them to Arizona and you show them Yuma and they look around and it's that tan, just like. I mean, pale, dusty, like beachy type sand. And they're like, what are you talking about? Gross stuff here. This isn't, this isn't what kind of soil you're growing. It's like, oh yeah, stick a seed in it. Yeah. Watch what happens, you know? Well, it's kind of the last thing I think of when I think of Arizona. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the other benefit was as well was citrus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Arizona was a great place for citrus outside of California or Florida because Yuma never freezes. And if yeah. you have a freeze in Florida or you have one in California, which 
occasionally happens in the citrus areas and you lose citrus suddenly the price of arizona citrus is, right. is going up and more valuable you know yep. um most years it's like no oh, it's coming from florida california you know but um yeah i mean yuma is is the uh it's the guinness world record book holder as the sunniest city in america uh there's more days of sun there than anywhere else fertile soils plenty of fertile sun soils, perfect kind of sun yeah perfect for growing yeah but yeah if, if you eat a salad pretty much between i would say november and march um I, all, every bit of salad in the country comes from Yuma. So I've eaten, I've eaten Yuma salad. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. It's crazy. That's, that's the winter crop, which is great. It's all vegetables. But now like, you know, during the springs and summers, it's uh, mostly a lot of it, cotton or wheat or uh, I mean, you know, whatever, whatever's kind of the farmers are right. looking to make money off this year. It, right. it rotates around, but uh, wheat has been the dominant uh thing now but yeah so we we had a crap ton of white wings back to our back to our original point here um there was a bunch of white you know you got a, a kind of a congregation of people now but there's white wings down there there's these huge mesquite thicket bosks down there um in in super high density um and you know those white wings that, that nest in colonies uh, which is kind of an unusual uh event compared to the rest of white wings uh yeah i mean it was that coming and going that annual coming and going but you know in yuma um and in, in south southern arizona the early in, in that that first half of the 1900s white wing was a separate bag limit for morning dove it wasn't part of the aggregate and we were shooting 25 white wing a day mm -hmm. as a bag limit separate from your morning doves yeah you yeah know, i mean that's, that many of them that's where our special white wing season came from is it yeah as there are our southernmost counties so you still got colonies oh yeah and that's something that we don't you know when they cleared all that riparian forest along the rio grande valley and near brownsville they they cleared out all all that native uh, uh nesting habitat mm -hmm. and so we don't have the colonies anymore and then you know kind of a, a quick recap on our history with white wings is when they lost that habitat they kind of disappeared for a while that's when parks and wildlife at the time started to implement some regulations to try to give them, you know, allow them to recover. And then at, at, around that time, we started planting citrus in those areas too. Right. And the white wings started to occupy those. And the, so the colonies kind of reformed in some of those citrus groves, which they then froze as there was a series of freezes in the 40s, 50s, 60s that destroyed those citrus groves. And then they moved up in to, into the rest of the state and urban areas like we have now. But um, we don't have the colonies anymore. Yeah. anywhere in texas and yeah what, what happened for us what was what was strange was um the the bosks the mesquite bosks mm -hmm. so these if you if you go back in history so our mesquites in arizona our native mesquites are way different than yours um and way different from the mesquites you see today all around the country um mostly because a lot of cattle ranching and stuff as as they you know developed the west they brought cows and sheep mm -hmm. um and with them they brought you know mesquite seeds from other parts of of the country and of the world so uh arizona's native mesquites like our velvet mesquite our uh screw bean mesquite or honey mesquite they would actually only grow in like the lowest parts of the landscape so in the draws in the washes that's where they set up you didn't see them over on top on like on the fingers or overland you know like kind of out the way you see them today 
those ones you see in Arizona today are uh, ones from cattle that were brought from Texas that were mm -hmm. probably brought from South America because we have like Chilean variety, Argentine variety. Like there's a weird mix of mesquites there now. Um, and you can always tell, I, I, I love being able to tell which mesquite it is from the pods. Um, not from like, you can look at the size and you can look at the leaves and, and kind of do it the way a normal, you know, I think person who wanted to classify trees mm -hmm. were, but I do it by taking the dried pods that are still hanging on the trees, snapping them and throwing them in my mouth. Um, <laughs> cause it, it's, it, you know, that pith inside of a mesquite pod um the beans are hard as rocks you need mm -hmm. a hammer mill or something to, to grind those down and you don't think you're going to chew on them you just got to let your saliva kind of work on the pith that's inside those beans because it tastes like brown sugar it's it's like a it's like a candy treat when you're out walking around in arizona um hmm. but if you have the south american varieties they almost have like a citrusy uh acidic kind of twang to them so you're doing it by taste yeah oh yeah <laughs> Well, um, and also if you, if you do grind mesquite flour, um, out of the pods and stuff, uh, like velvet mesquite, which is a, one of our native mesquites kind of down towards the Tucson area, more in, in central Arizona. Um, it produces the finest grain flour of any of the mesquites. Um, so when that gets ground down, it, it literally, you know, a lot of times mesquite flour is a little coarser. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, velvet mesquites, you can get down to a really fine powder. Um, and it's, it's absolutely awesome. But yeah, they have like this, this molassesy brown sugar, caramel type taste to them. Um, adds a really great, really great flavor. Sometimes like almost even a cinnamon note, yeah. um, when you're adding them. Now you can't use just straight mesquite flour to, to make or bake. It's right. not a, it's, an exact, like it, usually when I'm using it, it's, it's kind of a mix of regular all purpose flour or baking flour and, and mesquite flour to give it some lift. Cause otherwise mm -hmm. it's super dense, super mm -hmm. heavy. Um, I've made, I've made buns and, and stuff out like hamburger buns with it and have you? yeah it's it's a it's it's pretty cool it's fun to do so do you have like the 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 corn grinder oh no i don't even have like honestly you need a, a trailer mounted like <laughs> commercial yeah. grade grinder to take these take yeah. mesquite beans down because i believe awful. it i um, believe it yeah there's a there's actually a group out of, out of tucson called the southwest um what are they? Uh, oh, the desert harvesters. Um, and so they actually have a trailer mounted mill hammer mill that they bring around Tucson, Phoenix, different locations, um, during the, the harvest season. And so you can collect your own beans, you bring it in and for a donation, they'll grind, um, the beans down for you for flour. Now the trick is, is you have them do that, but you bring an extra bag. Um, cause they'll, they'll grind it. You bring your five gallon buckets, you know, they can put it right back in the bucket for you, but I always bring a paper bag. Um, I just figure it's cleaner that way, mm -hmm. but, um, have them grind down that mesquite and I have them, I have another bag, one of those kind of, you know, big paper grocery bags, um, for the chaff mm -hmm. that, that doesn't get pounded out because I can take the chaff and boil it down and make mesquite syrup with it. Okay. Um, so then you have flour and all that. So you can make like pancakes. You can make like a mesquite pancake with mesquite syrup on top of it. And oh, that's cool. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a lot of sugars in it. My, if anyone out there wants to collaborate, this has always been my thought with mesquites. I think there needs to be a mesquite bourbon that actually uses mesquite pods in the mesquite syrup. Cause there's a high sugar content in mesquite pods. Um, really good. You know, bourbon has to be at least 51% corn, mm -hmm. but if we mixed in the rest of it, you know, try to find that sweet spot with mesquite chaff, 
making a syrup out oh my god delicious man, man. <laughs> yes it, w- it would be spectacular yeah. um you know we, we gotta, uh, maybe just make limited run quantities of it so i you know i've had i've had lots of mesquite bean jelly but i, I have no idea how they make it so i this is oh, yeah. all new to me yeah 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 no there's there's mesquite there's there's so much food in the desert it's not even right. funny it's just it, it it's just different. You just have to have a little bit of know-how and all that stuff. But yeah, when I, when I walk out, when, when kind of dove season and quail season starts, if there's any mesquite trees that still have pods hanging on them, cause you don't want to pick them up off the ground at that point, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're no good. But if you, if you have dried beans on the, on the thing, you just pop it off, break a piece off, throw it in your mouth and just kind of let your saliva. Work. And it's, it's like you're, you get to eat candy while you're out hunting. It's kind of, right. it's kind of cool. I'm going to try it this year. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. But yeah, I think you'll notice um, the different varieties do produce a little you know kind of different flavor and, and now i've noticed like yeah the south american varieties uh peruvian chilean argentine they all have a just kind of a, a bite to it it's it's almost like a citric acid hmm. type flavor to it where the velvets don't and the screw beans don't the honeys don't um but um but yeah anyway so uh, here we are off on another tangent <laughs> uh, but so we had these really big mesquite bosques that were all in the low spots and they had, you know, any place that was kind of wet over time or throughout the year, even seasonally, you know, the mesquites would just pile up in here and you develop these huge thick forests of mesquites. Now these bosques were so big, they actually were named. I mean, each one had its own name. Right. It was Yankee Bosque, Liberty Bosque, you know, very, very American, you know, <laughs> <clears throat> um, kind of, kind of throwbacks there. But over time, you know, if you needed to, to, I mean, some of it was a little bit of development, like, oh, we need to, you know, get rid of this boss because we need to, you know, run a highway through it or whatever. And so um, you start, you know, they, they really, human development just started to, to kind of take over because these, these bosques were usually near waterways. Well, so how big are we talking? <sighs> um, some of them were, I, I want to say... Like Yankee and Liberty, each were a few thousand, hundred thousand acres. Oh wow! Um, they were they were big, um, and you know, real high density of, of trees, kind of in a small place. But so as those were going away, was kind of at the same time, you know, along the the waterways, um, the Gila River and and Colorado River and all that stuff, is when we started getting the invasive salt cedar. Mm-hmm. And so, doves really don't care what tree you know, they're, they're nesting in or roosting in. They just like structure. Um, there are some trees I'm, I'm sure they don't like, but, um, you know, for the most part, as long as it's got structure that can support the flimsy little nest they produce and <laughs> the three you know, sticks, lets, and, yeah. yeah, lets them roost off the ground and those kind of things. Um, so the salt cedar comes in, uh, right after that, as well as that conversion to, to citrus. And so, you know, let's replace this with, with citrus. And so, um, our colonies just kind of either, stayed in the same spot because the trees got replaced, um, particularly along waterways and stuff where there were, you know, really thick mesquites. Now it's all salt cedar. You know, they use that just as well or, you know, moving not too far off because anywhere Arizona we have water, we're likely to have agriculture. <laughs> so right. that's where the citrus stuff's going to go, you know, um, aside from, you know, giant canals that cross the entire state, you know, um, <laughs> to, to, put water where we want it instead of you know where it decided to go naturally right. so um yeah cap canals and and that kind of stuff you know it, it's always nice like you know you're you're cruising through the desert and i mean it's desolate and there's nothing 
absolutely nothing going on out there. And it's like you hit a brick wall because there's a canal in front of you and there's no bridge anywhere in sight. <laughs> so you got to like start looking at maps to figure out, okay, do I go left or right? And how many miles is it before I can get to an actual crossing if I want to get on the other side? That's wild. I've, yeah, I really need to come visit, get the whole Arizona experience because yeah. this yeah, is all new to me. Yeah, well, I mean, you're you're no stranger to dust and dirt. And that's, oh, no, that's pretty much what it is. <laughs> now, our, <clears throat> now Arizona's dirt is special, though. Do you know that? No. So, have you ever looked at at air filters? Mm-hmm. You ever looked at their like ratings? Is it the HIP, HEPA? Yeah, yeah. whatever I mean, they are. Just, yeah. yeah, particulate. Yeah, yeah. Filter ratings. You ever noticed anything strange about it? No. Yeah. So there. If if you ever look at filters. Every filter has an ARD rating. Okay. You know what ARD stands for? Arizona's road dust. Road dust. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have, we ha- Arizona, this Henry Ford discovered this um, way back in the early days of, of Ford because when he was creating his vehicles, they'd get to Arizona and they were like seizing up and breaking and like he, he couldn't figure it out. And so he, you know, sent people down. He's like, go figure out what the heck's going on in Arizona. Like, why are all our vehicles breaking down? Is it because of the heat or whatever? No, it's actually because Arizona is covered top to bottom, east to west, you know, um, north to south with what's now affectionately known as Arizona road dust. There's, there's a dust. We produce a dust that's the smallest particulate size and it's even, like the sand is, it's so small, it's so fine and it's even and it's everywhere. You know, that's all the dust storms you see yeah. like on TV for yeah. Arizona and all that other stuff. It covers the entire state. And so it was actually getting into the engines of, of Henry Ford's Model T's and, you know, chewing everything up. And so that's when they actually had to start creating an air filter right. <clears throat> to, to block. And, okay. and so that's why air filters now are all have an ARD rating and that stands for Arizona road dust. So yeah, whatever half, half micron or whatever size it, it, it is. Yep. Wow. It's a uniform size and it's all over the state of Arizona. Huh. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's very bizarre. That is bizarre. Yeah. Cause I feel like a lot of our dust is just, it's like getting hit with rocks when the wind's blowing. <laughs> We've got that coarse stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it, there's, there's just a heavy layer of it. It doesn't matter where you go, but it, it's a, yeah, it's a real fine, super fine, silty sand, just light particulate that, you know, when the monsoon season starts and, dust storms and all that start going so not only is it dry enough it makes your nose bleed it also you're sucking in all this <laughs> this fine finite or fine scaled abrasive into your your lungs and oh yeah nostrils. <laughs> well but then but then you find out that there's the fungus what yeah so so we have a very there's a there's a very strange um condition that happens if you lived in arizona for at least five years you you will have been infected with this it just this it's whether or not you get sick from it so we have what it's called valley fever and some people are really affected by it other people's aren't but once you've once you've been there like everyone who's been there five years has had it because it's there's a fungus that's a part of this dust (laughs) it's everywhere gets in your lungs up your nose um and it actually affects dogs really really bad dogs get it yeah um but it affects every dog differently the same way it does humans Mm -hmm. it's it's the strange thing but yeah it's it's a fungus and it gives you valley fever and it can cause like respiratory things joint issue i mean like yeah there's there's all kinds of weird things that this valley fever does and it's like only there it's just yeah it's pretty bizarre 
yeah, I, this is all new to me. I, have, I had no idea. Yeah, it's and it's kind of like um, I always, I laughed, I laughed during COVID when when um, you know the the oh my god the murder hornets they found in Washington, right? <laughs> I just I it it just kills me because it's like you know everyone's freaking out about murder hornets and I'm like going, have you been to Arizona? Like you know like. Arizona's sitting there watching, you know, the news and it's like, Oh, murder horns are watching. It's like, Hey, hold my bear. Just give me a second. You know, like (laughs) I was like, have you seen tarantula hawks? Yeah. You know, I mean like tarantula hawks, second most painful sting on planet earth. I've been stung and it is no fun. Yeah. Caught me on the wrist on a, on a project one time. I think that's the one wasp I haven't been hit by. I think it is, it is evil, but they're, they're giant black, wasp looking things with red wings they're already evil i mean Mm -hmm. if you want to watch if if you remember like mutual of omaha's wild kingdom like if you want to (laughs) watch like the biggest watch a tarantula and a tarantula hawk fight that's how it got its name i have a species of wasp that kills tarantulas in the most sadistic way possible for the purpose of inserting its eggs inside the dead body of it <laughs> so that they, the, the larva eat their way out of a tarantula. I mean, like it's, this is, that is horror it, movie oh, yeah. stuff. Oh yeah. 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 Every plant's got thorns and hooks on oh, it and yeah. barbs. Everything in Arizona is trying to kill you, including the climate. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, you know, it, it, it's what it is. So yeah. like, uh, you know, I'll give it to Australia about having like some, some things that are like, because they have the ocean, they got sharks and, and all that stuff. But I, Pound for pound, like Arizona stands up to any of the most wicked, evil places <laughs> on planet Earth there is. I mean, one of the, we have 13 venomous snakes. Mm-hmm. Y'all got several different rattlesnakes that, oh, yeah, that we don't have. Out there, oh, right? oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah we got rare endemic ones, yeah. you know. Um, but uh, we have the only uh, venomous lizard, mm-hmm. the Gila monster. I still want to see one. Oh, they're cool. They're yeah. cool. Um, it's great to have them like chase you around and hiss at you. <laughs> like it scares you a little bit. Um, it's hard to be scared of a lizard that's pink and black. Right. You're right. like, uh, am I supposed to be like green lizards, like, like alligators and like, okay, I get that. But this thing is like Sedona pink and black. I'm like, I, I don't it, know if I should pet you or run from you. They like, look like a little kid drew it and it came to life. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're not of. normal looking, yeah. you know? Uh, big fat tails like mm-hmm. it's not even a, a nice like lizard right. long you know tapered tail no it's this big chunky you know <laughs> looks like a baseball bat off the back of it um but yeah i mean like it's just yeah tarantula hawks i mean there's there's just so many bizarre things going mm-hmm. on uh we have a coral snake too yeah um that's one of our other uh, aside from the rattlesnakes so you- um well, yeah, just like the coral snake, or is it a different coral snake? No, the coral snake. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. We, we, we get coral snakes, yeah. yeah. But then, then we have the fake one. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. That's the best one. That's when, that's when the the, the uh, uh, song has to come back, yeah. or you know, the, the limerick. Red and black, friend of Jack, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, what is it? Uh, red on yellow, kill a fellow. Kill a fellow, yep. Yeah. Red on black just gives you a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I, coral snakes are beautiful, man. I that's one of my favorite snakes that that I come across every once in a while. But uh, yeah, yeah, I've got a lot of the rattlesnakes that we, yeah, we get. I think just a few Massasagas and yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there's there's even specific, like the Arizona black um, Arizona black rattlesnake and and stuff. I the only thing like you know you get further out and and you get like 
like timber rattlers and prairie rattlers, mm-hmm. which is what we don't have either of those. But I actually like those rattlers because, you know, like you don't have to be close for them to tell you you're pissing them off. Right. You know, like they tell you there, it's like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks. Appreciate that. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a wide <laughs> berth. You know, Arizona, they're so docile and quiet. You're like, you'll almost sit on them, yeah. you know, and they don't even rattle you. I'm like, please stop. You're going to kill me. Yeah. Like legitimately, I'm going to sit down here. You're going to bite me in the rear end yep. and I'm going to die. I've come across so many, uh, diamondbacks in, in South Texas that I've almost stepped on or kicked with my foot. And they're just like, oh, Hey man, come on. They just slither out, you know, no. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're one of the more docile snakes, honestly, that I come across that, you know, versus like a cotton mouth or, or some of these other ones that like I, I've had them come after me, you know, yeah. they're, they're a lot more aggressive about it. And, and I appreciate that about those rattles because yeah. they get huge. Yeah. You know, I've seen some really big ones, six, six plus footers and those, yeah. they look scary. Well, I would say the only one, the only Viper that we have in North America that like really scares the ever loving bejesus out of me is copperheads Mm -hmm. because they don't have a rattle. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, okay, you, these things make me nervous. It's all good. I, you know, I get into the South and I'm like, okay, like my, my nerves are racked. If it's not, you know, winter time, it's not cold. It's, It's warm. It's comfortable. I mean, I've gotten used to the fact that pretty much anywhere in the Southeast, if I'm in water, there's likely an alligator. Mm hmm. Like I've gotten comfortable with that, but yeah, copperheads, copperheads, I still just can't seem to get comfortable with, like because yeah. they could be anywhere. They could. And my mom got bit, got bit <laughs> in the foot a few years ago, several years ago, uh, walking around in the yard at night with flip flops. Yeah, stepped stepped on one. Yeah. I mean, yeah, cottonmouths were always the one that they just. It's the only snake that makes me nervous. Yeah, because I've, I've been I've spent so much time in wetlands and I've had so many close calls with those things that um, you know, as a younger man, I would. I had I almost hated them, you know, but now I understand they're just doing what snakes do. Right. But still, we're sharing the same space and a lot of times we're a little too close for comfort. Yeah. Yeah, it well and and anytime I see snakes, I I, I ran into my first cottonmouth actually in Arkansas, um uh, at the Bayou Meadow Wildlife Area. Mm-hmm. Um, went out there to to try and duck hunt and uh we were there was they had mowed the grass on one of the roads and but it was had grown back and it was probably maybe five six inches tall and we're walking in waders and walking down and all of a sudden like i literally just looked down and there's this head mm-hmm. sticking out of the grass and i'm like grabbing my buddy I'm like stop he's like what i'm like look you know and here's this just big old cottonmouth that i'm like well he's not pissed off he's not you know i mean he's not showing off his his okay his name. He, he didn't have yeah he didn't have he just had open. his head up and he's just looking yeah and i'm like okay you know <laughs> yeah um, when i was in grad school i had a a, a levy that i was marking transects for my for my uh, study and i did a uh, it was a bird study so i had these these survey transects that i was marking on the gps and so i walked out there in, in tennis shoes and for some reason i used to carry it like a meter stick just like a cheap you know i always had a stick with me but for some reason i had a meter stick in the truck that i always took with me and i'm walking down this levee and it was about a mile of levee on one of our wmas and it was a hot sunny day and i was walking along and i kept seeing these these cottonmouths just out sunning on the levee and so as as i went you know i kept flipping them off out of my way with the meter stick and then i got all the way down there and i i swear i probably flipped like 25 30 snakes off this levee by the time i got to the end no big deal you know whatever got down to the end i'm on my gps for a good five minutes you know pressing buttons beep, boop, boop, boop. and then i hear a little twitch and i look down 
and on a big clump of grass right next to my knee, like 10 inches away, is a coiled up cotton mouth, mouth open, tail twitching, just ready to ready to bite. And he, he could have been there the whole time, probably was. <laughs> and it just freaked me out so bad that, you know, I instantly jumped back. It's like, oh, my God. So then I knew that I had to go back through all those snakes to get back to the <laughs> truck. And I, I started thinking, I was like, well, they're going to hear me coming. And the last time that I, you know, they, they crossed my path, I flipped them off in the wetland with the stick. So they might be a little angry right now. And so I started, it took me, I bet, two hours to walk that, that last mile back to the truck. Just every step was like, hmm, hmm. Just making sure, yeah. Freaked me out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, snakes are, are not any fun. So have you had trouble with snakes and dove traps? Um, I have had a snake, um, half like, so it half swallowed a dove. It was still trying to eat right. it. And then it couldn't get out of the cage cause it's one by two welded wire. <laughs> and so, yeah, here's this snake like that's, he's kind of fighting the cage with his tail cause he's trying to figure out how to get out, but he can't cause he's got a dove in his mouth, um, and can't fit back through the wire. And so that was, that was kind of entertaining. What kind of snake was it? Uh, what's it? Probably a Western or a Mojave or something. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, I mean, it was a pretty sizable snake to begin with as it was. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was not happy. Um, so Owen, Owen and I spend pretty much every summer focused on banding doves. Um, and we use this, this trap called a modified Niffin trap for the most part. Um, which is, if you can imagine, it's, it's about a two foot by two foot square, uh, it's all one by two welded wire. You know, I think original ones were probably chicken wire or something, but yeah. they have kind of two doors on it um, that that the dove can kind of walk in and pinch his way in at the end of the door. And like a little kinda, funnel. Yeah, yeah, he's like trapped in there. But uh, you want to talk about like some of the harrowing adventures of what happens with just trapping and banding doves and, and what shows up in there. <laughs> um Give me your coolest story from from trapping and banning doves, and and I'll I'll give you mine. I don't know that I have a real cool one. Um, most of my trapping's been kind of in a, in and around cities. Yeah. You know, like I I do a lot just outside of town and, and in town too. And honestly, the I get more dogs and cat issues and and people issues right. than I do anything else. But I know some of our banders on the coast have had to deal with alligators, uh, flipping traps. Oh, uh, you know what? I got the best one. This happened last year. So. Uh, one of our banders down in South Texas, I won't say exactly where, uh, called me and she said, I'm having a really hard time catching these birds because I keep having trouble with the warthogs. And a lot of people don't realize we now have warthogs in some right. parts of South Texas. And so I was like, okay, well, that's a new one, you know? And I said, what do you, you know, tell me, tell me what's going on. And so she told me kind of what they're, what she was using for bait and everything. It turns out she was using a lot of corn in the bait mix. I said, well, that's probably the issue, but, but yeah, that's, I, having a warthog come in and crush your trap and and so they, they at one point they started staking them down with rebar because they kept just pushing them off out of the way well then they just started ripping them apart completely and destroying all the traps and so we ended up having to just use straight milo no corn right you know that kind of solved the issue but but yeah i just when she called me i was like you I say what <laughs> oh what is destroying the traps yeah, yeah. I, I've had I've had javelina like you mm -hmm. know come and screw around with them and and they'll get their legs stuck in it when they're stepping on it 
because yeah. they just have the real like really dainty pointy little toes pointy ones. but then they'll like drag the trap off because they're like stuck <laughs> to them now and it's like you'll see the drag marks of the trap going for like 50 100 yards you know off in right. the brush somewhere until it finally pulls off their leg but um so here's here's my best of trapping story and it involves a loggerhead shrike now for the listeners loggerhead shrikes are a really cool bird um they are meat eaters <laughs> Okay, these are these are small but very vicious birds. Carnivorous they, oh, they're birds. Carnivorous, yeah. They they're wicked, wicked birds. If you get a chance, Google them, look them up. Loggerhead shrikes. So loggerheads, I always call. If you've ever seen the movie Predator, that's what they remind me of. Like their hunting style and everything is all about predator. Because what you'll find is a loggerhead will go and they'll catch mice, they'll catch lizards, they'll catch snakes, and they once they kill them they'll take them back to their shrine is what i call it <laughs> you'll find a piece of like barbed wire fence where they hang the bodies on the barbs to strip the meat off and so all you'll have is like carcasses and and shells and bones hanging on this like section of barbed wire fence on a farm or a ranch somewhere and you know a loggerhead is there well so I was banning in this spot down in Yuma one year. And for whatever reason, we were catching, um, uh, generally we're trying to catch morning doves and white wings to, to get bands on them. But in this particular spot, we, we kind of had a plague of, of ground doves, lot, lot smaller doves, mm -hmm. um, little Sonoran ground doves. And I, I, they're, they're cool. I like seeing them and, and pick them up, but I, I don't put bands on them. We don't have small enough bands for those guys hanging around all the time. So I usually just let them go. Well, if I left the trap for any length of time, like to not observe it, like just let it, you know, soak and, and kind of fill up with birds without me, you know, like, like having the cook watch the pot until it boils, <laughs> you know? Um, so I get a couple of ground doves in there and I would come back to the trap after, you know, 20, 30 minutes and there, any ground up that was in there was headless. Oh, wow. All their heads were ripped off. And all it was was just the, the body, wings, and feet. And all their heads were gone. I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> like, this is a gruesome crime scene. And uh, so this happened a few times. And, and I was like, man, like, I just, I can't, I don't think I can use this trap anymore. Like, I just need to stop trapping here because I just, I feel bad because something's killing all the ground doves. It's, it's a population it wasn't, it wasn't killing any of the morning doves. It wasn't killing any of the white wings. It was just ground doves. And I'm like, what is going on? So finally, I was like, I'm going to sit here and watch this. I got to figure this out. Sure enough, out there on the fence, up comes this loggerhead shrike, goes down. You know, there's a little ground dove in there. And I mean, it was fast and vicious. He yeah. got the, the dove is like got its head sticking out of the trap trying to get away. And it just comes up, grabs it, rips the head off, <laughs> flies off. And I was like, okay, I need to go find this altar because right. there were like, I'm like, so I'm like looking around and finally I find this section of barbed wire fence and, and it's Yuma. So like things desiccate really quickly. We have like ants that will strip. Like it's pretty amazing how quickly just the ants in Yuma, if there is any meat or consumable, you know, feathers, meat, skin, doesn't matter. The ants will strip it down in just minutes, right? I mean, they'll strip if you if you had a, a dove you shot that landed in the field and you couldn't find it. You could go back like in two days and it would be nothing but bones, yep. Yep. you know? 
but so I come up there and there's just like, it literally looked like a scene out of predator, but for birds, you know, <laughs> there's literally dove heads just on every barb as you kind of go along and they're all just skulls and stuff. I was like, this is like the greatest hunting shrine yeah. for a, for a meat eating bird. I think I've ever seen. I mean, even road runners aren't that sadistic, you know, <laughs> but loggerheads, holy smokes. The strike shrine. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're there. It, it's just like, you know, heads on spires just it's like you're walking into the 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 den of evil at this point (laughs) that's hilarious yeah yeah we we've got an unusual number i feel like an unusual number of strikes this year hanging around my office yeah yeah there's a bunch of them they're they're one of my favorite birds i love them yeah yeah uh, so i have a love-hate relationship with roadrunners because they're meat eaters and um they're honest to God, honest to God, they have to be what velociraptors evolved into. Yeah. I am convinced of it. Yeah. Like I've never seen a bird and I don't know if you, how much you've ever watched them or whatnot. Mm -hmm. They have full control over every feather on their body. Mm -hmm. Like the coolest thing is in, in, in the, in the, in the winters in Arizona, if you get out into the desert, just as the sun's coming up, sometimes you'll be looking out there and you'll see these puff balls, out on the sand and you're like it's just this big round puffball it's it, you can tell it's like soft edge it's not a cactus or you know something that's that's sharper right it's just this giant puffball and you're like what is that like if you see it off at a distance and if you can get close enough for you got binos to literally it is a roadrunner who has his back to the sun and has opened up his mm-hmm. all his feathers to expose the skin underneath the feathers on his back to absorb sunlight. Yep. And and I'm like, it, it's crazy. Yeah. But then, like you know, if you ever get close to one, I, I had one, I had one that um, used to hang around. So there was this area near our office that uh, we always had cubbies of quail around and stuff like that, and I'd always watch them because they were kind of good indicators of you know what was going on and and uh you can always tell when when the quail hatch is on because you'll see road runners just everywhere right. i mean like like you don't see any road runners forever and you start driving down an old country road and there's road runners just you're like oh quail hatch is on in this yep. area you know but so i was watching these few coveys and um come in early in the morning come drive drive through and and sure enough you know here i see this road runner run across the road with a with a quail chick in his mouth like, you know, just a few days old. I was like, oh, you know, and I could tell, like, it was, this was the same roadrunner every right. day that I was seeing. And he was literally, it was like a quail chick just every day. A buffet. And he wasn't like hitting one cubby in particular. So he wasn't like, you know, completely destroying this cubby. It was like, it wasn't enough to, it, it was noticeable because I saw it. Mm-hmm. Overall, you know, the cubbies ended up doing fine. And I mean, you know, lose two or three, you know, not a big deal. But um, so I nicknamed him QEB quail eating bastard that was his new name and so i was like oh there's qeb again you know and he he hung around you know kind of the, the general area parking lot and the building and stuff and i'd go outside and see him and and um we had a uh commission meeting one saturday that i had to be there for and everyone's inside and i just walked outside kind of get some fresh air and stuff you know it's getting stuffy in there lots of hot air in commission meetings as you're well aware <laughs> but uh so i'm sitting outside and and i go to sit on this rock and around the corner comes qeb right there he is and and, and they literally have this they have a way of looking at you that only meat eating birds can yeah right 
and, and they can flare that the, yep. the the mohawk on the top of their head and kind of you know they, they give, give you attitude. The, well, they give you look. So he literally comes up and he's probably six feet away. Hops hops on a rock six feet away from me as I'm sitting there, and he's looking at me, giving me that like sizing me up to see if he could take me mm-hmm. right and eat me. And I was like, I was like, not a chance. And said, <laughs> you come a little closer, right into kicking distance, but like <laughs> like I'll show you. Like you know, and we sat there. I mean, it's 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 kind of a cool interaction because they're they're actually really beautiful birds yeah you know the color the the color patches they have around the eyes and and uh just a an amazing amazing bird but um yeah he he, he, like and then it was like i don't know weeks later you know qeb was always around i was like why don't you just go eat lizards but i came to terms with qeb i said okay here's the thing i know roadrunners kill rattlesnakes and they're very good at it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's probably one of the coolest things if you ever get the chance to see it's, one where they do the matador thing with yep, the wings. It's and, amazing. But so I figured, all right, QEB has to eat some quail, which are taken away from my birds that I get to hunt, right? <laughs> so he's, he's taken away some of that. But I think I can forgive him because he's probably saved my life a time or two right. by eating a couple of rattlesnakes. So, you know, it's kind of like payment, yeah. payment owed, payment due. Yeah. All right. You know, we're, we're kind of on a... On a on a on an even keel there and then it was a few weeks later i'm driving into work and and i see these like feathers all askew on the side of the road oh no and um as i'm driving up and i was like oh well, yeah, that's a road runner yep <laughs> that's probably yeah. qeb right there never saw him again rest in peace yeah, yeah that was it you know yeah i was gonna say you know he brought up the feather thing and the attitude and uh my road runner story I, I used to work on a private lease on the king ranch when i was young uh, right out of right out of college, uh, guiding hunts, and so every day I had to drive in and out of the ranch. Which, to give you an idea of just that one section of the ranch, it was like an hour drive through the ranch to get to where I worked to the lease that I worked on. But this one area would always have these roadrunners. And one day uh, I was driving in, and this one jumped up in front of me, hit the the antenna on my truck, cracked the side of my windshield, and I had those plastic things that go over the your window, yeah, yeah. you know, so you can like roll your window down a little bit and not let the rain in tore that thing off my truck and i had a little ford ranger is what it was and i stopped you know in the caliche blood dust everywhere and i got out and i was like you gotta be kidding me like cracked my windshield you know and i expect to find this dead bird and i turn around and he's just sitting there looking at me like he nothing no broken wings no broken legs and he's just giving me this look like I can't believe you just hit me you son of a you know and he's got his feathers flared up and i was like whoa okay I guess I guess that's what I'm dealing with, yeah. with these little dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are beautiful though. If you catch them in the early light, like all that color pops. Man, really, really beautiful birds. Yeah. So, I have a question for you, Owen. Okay. This is this is this is a, a deep thought of mine I had for a long time. It it seems as though if you get at least two Texans, at least two, or <laughs> or two or more right doing anything at any time anywhere together eventually it will turn into a cook out or a cook off okay yeah <laughs> it's a theory i'm working on here yeah yeah is that is that pretty much you think I, that that's pretty accurate? i never thought about that but yeah probably yeah like two texans go out dove hunting it's going to turn into a cook out or a cook off yeah, I guess it depends on how how much they like each other, right. or how much they hate each other. Yeah, yeah, whether it gets competitive or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We like to cook. We, I mean, we like to eat. I yeah. guess that's the, that's the the real thing. Well, I, I I love. I mean, um, 
obviously the 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 big big food item for doves is the popper. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting to me about it is is that we really don't know the origin of it. So, so that you brought up the Hank Shaw podcast, and I being from Texas, right? I just assumed that we developed this thing, this delicious treat that everybody partakes of every year. Yeah, but he opened my eyes to like the some of the regional trends and and how they how they do their own poppers and oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and now it's it's kind of like the the I guess. There's some other, you know, like nachos. Where did nachos come from? Or tacos? Sure. Right. Like who well, ta- really? I mean, tacos we know uh, pretty. We can we can at least pinpoint a little bit more. I mean, you know, like Aztecs, yeah, nixtamalizing corn right, and right. all that stuff. You know that the the tortilla is a it's it's humankind's first attempt at an edible spoon. Yeah, is what a tortilla. Well, is. and every culture's got its own bread spoon sure. well, there's, type thing. Yeah, right? and there's naan, and there's yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, flat breads and those kind of things. Um, obviously, you know, the the Mayans and Aztecs were doing with corn, right? Um, so, but um, so the the popper, I mean, that's that's what's really good. so the dove popper. Obviously, I think you know came along a little bit later, but um, it's it's hard to figure. There are aspects of the popper, obviously, that are certain that are regional. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, cream cheese definitely had to be an American addition, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but because, in all honesty, like, there's a few like like chili reno. Chili reno is the closest like Mexican dish I can think of that almost comes close to a popper. You have a pepper stuffed with cheese, fried because there's there's like bread and fried poppers. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had those. Mm-hmm. There's the bacon wrapped, you know, which is kind of free. You know, some people are using cream cheese. Some people are using regular cheese. Some people are using liquid gold Velveeta. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's kind of some new ones. But there, there are like almost, there are a couple of Mexican dishes that are popper-esque using jalapenos. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it really is the most common chili yeah. um, today for sure. Yeah. But I mean, in certain areas, I mean, they were cultivating jalapenos. I mean, I think when the Spaniards came over, um, because they were making chipotles out of them, you know, which is basically a, a jalapeno pepper that is brought all the way through to its its final color of red, and then smoked, you know, over over a nice mesquite fire and all that stuff to give it that smoky. So that's how you make chipotle and adobo, mm-hmm. um, you know, both in one there, but. Yeah, it's it's so strange because it's like you know, I, I think people are like, oh, you know, it's a Texas thing, or you know, oh, you know, it came from Mexico. Oh, maybe it came from Arizona. I mean, you know, it's it's strange to think that there's this dish that just has kind of a mysterious origin. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, it, do you guys do the uh, the armadillo eggs, which is just the, that's a Texas thing for okay. sure. Yeah, okay. armadillo eggs definitely that that we can pinpoint. We do know okay. that came out in Texas. So this is basically a popper without the dove. Well, yeah, and that's well, but that's it that's kind of an evolution of um, the popper itself, Mm -hmm. you know, how it just kind of takes over different forms. Right. You know, that's to me, like I honestly, at some point I would love to like, just do an across the country, a a proper popper treatise. Right. (laughs) Because 
honestly, there's guys making pheasant poppers up in the Dakotas. Yeah. There's guys making teal poppers. We do venison too. There's venison. There's, uh, you know, I mean, it isn't just exclusive to dub, even though like it, it seems to be, you know, like, like there, there are specific dishes for specific species. Like duck all orange is a, is a, you know, that's a a classic. Yeah. It's a a quintessential duck dish. Like for dove, the popper is a quintessential, like, this is how you enjoy dove. And, And I think as you guys were talking about, I mean, you are right. It's, it's probably the most accessible way for people who haven't eaten game before or, you know, kind of being introduced to it. It's, it's safe. I mean, other than the fact that there are some people who don't like heat and they kind of get freaked out by jalapenos or whatever, but you know, it's, it's, it's accessible. It's easy. You know, it's, it's like, okay, this isn't as scary as like, you know, um, Fagua roasted, you know, <laughs> right. dove or something. Right, you, know? you just pile it something all together, crazy. wrap it in bacon, and yeah. grill it. Yeah, yeah. You know, bacon's not scary. Cream cheese isn't scary. Hopping maybe a little bit. You yeah. know, well, so me something new. So you know, I was just telling you earlier that uh, my intern this year is from South Africa, right? And he's Jewish, and so I was, he, you know, he's new to doves, completely new to doves. And so I had him out there. We were we were trapping some doves, showing him how to band. And he started asking me like, "How do you how do you prepare them? How do you how do you cook these things?" And of course, the first thing that comes to my mind is popper. But because like to be kosher, you can't have uh, from what I understand my limited Jewish knowledge, you can't have milk and meat, so you can't have cheese mm-hmm. with the meat, uh, and you also can't have pork. Right. So and I was like, okay, well, well, you can't have well, you can't have the cream cheese. Oh, well, you can't have the bacon. And I was like, well, how are we going to make a popper a kosher <laughs> popper? And so I, you know, I thought maybe turkey bacon and for the cheese, you know, I think Hank during that conversation brought up like roasted garlic, yeah, and and using that kind of instead of cheese, and yeah. I thought well, maybe I'll try that. So I think this year, just from my intern, we're gonna we're gonna try to go hunting and and try to develop a, a really good, tasty kosher popper. Yeah. So I will tell you because um, I I've I've attempted to make poppers a lot of different ways, um, just just kind of experimenting and playing. Um, so because most of the time it's. If I'm in a small town in Arizona, I can guarantee you if I stop by a market, I'm going to be able to find jalapenos. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter how small the town is. <laughs> like, I could be at the family dollar. You know, there's jalapenos there in the in the produce section, um, if nothing else. But um, so I, I think probably I did a, a popper with uh, goat cheese mm. and prosciutto. Oh, that'd be good. Uh, one time, classy. Chris, Chris that up on the on the grill. Um, I think one of my favorite things that I haven't completely figured out yet. I love grilled pineapple with dove, and I've used ham to make it like kind of the Hawaiian mm, pizza right. of of doves, but it just didn't didn't kind of sit right. I'm trying to still figure out the perfect like meat wrap fatty you know thing to add because grilled pineapple and dove is just over the over the top yeah well now you got me thinking like bacon fig dove <clears throat> yeah you got the wheels turning yeah for sure hmm but yeah definitely add herbs and stuff. i mean like but that's where i'm that's where i'm thinking like there has to be a proper popper t- treatise, right? You know, like of all the popper wild game poppers around the country, how it's celebrated, how it's created, how it's, you know, it, just just to like capture it, yeah. You know, in in and of its essence, because it's it, it seems pretty. I think once people try them, like it's it's a life changing experience it for them. You know, <laughs> poppers. It, you know, and you can't just you can't just nibble on the end. You got to just eat the whole thing. And yeah. that just of all the flavors come together 
into one big amazing thing yeah 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 it's it's good i i will say that i think one of my favorite my favorite things that i've ever made with dove um so sometimes like i i get weird questions in my head like i ask i i try to like <laughs> i try to paradigm shift things right and so um I was actually, it was for the, the second annual world championship dove cook-off in Yuma. Um, I was, I was trying to plan a meal. I'm like, what do I do with dove? Right. And I got the weirdest question in my head of what do you do if you have too much dove, which is not a normal question. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like if you have an elk, okay, what am I going to do with all this elk? Right. Right. With doves, it's like, you, you, you kind of 15, you know, maybe right. 30, if you got a couple days limits, but like, there's never like an, a great abundance. Like what, what would you do that you haven't thought of? And, and so for me, it was like sausage, Yeah. you know? And I was like, I was like dove sausage. And so I started doing research and I couldn't find Hank hadn't even created a dove sausage at that point. Like I was like, no one's made a dove sausage. Like this is, okay, here's something new, you know? And then I started like, okay, well, what kind of sausage am I going to make with this? You know, plethora of different styles. And so what I finally decided was I was going to make an Italian dove sausage, like a spicy Italian dove sausage that I could use in raviolis. Mm-hmm. But I was going to like, I wasn't going to have like just regular raviolis. I was going to have toasted raviolis, oh. crispy, yeah, fried yeah, up, yeah. you know? I was like, yeah. And then dip in a marinara sauce. So, <laughs> so I will say like, yeah, the, the, but I had, to, I had to do like a ton of, research and work man i can't tell you how many eurasian collar doves i shot in the off season <laughs> to like just like okay because you have to scale recipes right yeah and so i'm like okay let me start looking at italian sausage recipes and what i kind of want and and okay let me take a little bit from here but then it's like okay well this you know this is the amount for two pounds for this recipe I don't have two pounds of dove meat. No, you know, you know how many doves you need for two pounds of dove? I mean, like, like just breast meat. Yeah. Like it's a lot. Yeah. Um, um, and so, uh, yeah, it was almost, I, I, I want to say it's turning into pinches of spices at this point. Yeah. Like yeah. you gotta, you know, you're trying to, and then of course, like, thankfully I have an abundance of doves available to me, you know, so that I can practice and do mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But you know, for most folks, it's like, you know, somewhere else in Indiana, you know, they might shoot six birds. Right. It's like, um, well, that's, you know, right. we don't have enough, but, um, yeah, I, I know you, cause you were interested in, in other ways to like do mm-hmm. stuff. I'm going to have to send you the Italian dove sausage well, recipe. Yeah. So. And I've been on a big sausage making kick past few years. So that fits right in. Yeah. 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 Thankfully, what I ended up doing is I looked at a lot of like duck and goose sausages so mm-hmm. I could kind of get right in my mind what that, in essence, they're, they're similar, mm-hmm. you know, meat wise and stuff. So it was like, okay, you know how are folks using duck and dove, you know, sausages to, to, in terms of that seasoning and flavor adjustments, yeah. you know, to, to kind of ratio it out. Cause it was like, man, I'm going to have to like spend all my whole, <laughs> my whole summer at the dairy, just picking off Eurasian collar doves, yeah. you know, and then try this. Oh, no, that didn't work. All right. Let's go, you know, start another batch. So shoot another 25, 30 birds. Have Eurasian collar doves become a, a, a bird to chase? for Arizona hunters? Yeah. Well, for some hunters. Yeah. Um, okay. there's actually, uh, it's funny. It was, it was probably two or three days before the opener, um, in Yuma one year. And so I was going out to check on fields and see what the flights looked like and, and all that. It was, yeah, I think it was about two days before the opener. And so I'm driving down 
and there's this grain silo um, there, and, and I see a guy standing out there with a shotgun. And I was like, wait a minute. It's not season yet. <laughs> Let me go talk to this guy. So I get down there, and literally, it was probably, I don't even know. It's probably 9 in the morning. This guy had been out there since sunrise. He had over 300 Eurasian collar doves wow. on the ground yeah. at this spot. And uh, I was talking to him. He's like, he's like, oh, yeah, I come out and do this every year. you know. And, and he had his license and stuff. Yeah. And uh, that's but, your sausage. Uh, he's, he's, right I said, oh, I said, I said, well, you know, I said, boy, you're going to be already, you know, ahead of the game by the time the first. He's like, oh, I don't hang out for the first. He's like, it's too crazy for me then. <laughs> he's like, I always come here a few days, you know, about a week early and just shoot birds up, you know, all the Eurasian collar doves I want until, oh, man. you know, he's got to figure that it way out. I don't have to get any competition. Yeah. He's I was like, figure it out. I was like, oh, okay, I can see that. So yeah. I was like, hey, if it works, it works. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that some of our hunters do hunt them outside of the season, but it seems like, we, I mean, we've got a lot of people that do chase them. And in certain areas, you can, I mean, you can get into clouds, yeah. clouds of Eurasians. But I feel like most of them hunt Eurasians during the season. And I, you know, I try to tell these guys, like, you can hunt them year round if you want. Yeah. You know, and I know they don't always congregate like they do in the fall in those big groups, but, but still, you know, it, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, it, I think as you and I both know, um, you know, most of the dove hunting, if you looked at the entire season, happens in the first two weeks. Yeah. Like everyone will just shoot out in the first two weeks and then it just dies. Mm -hmm. Like there's other things to chase. There's deer, there's rabbits, there's quail, there's, you know, they just, it's like they need to get the September 1st out of their system. Mm -hmm. Cause it's almost kind of like the official start of the entire hunting season. It is. I mean, there are other seasons, like there's pronghorn season, pronghorn antelope. I mean, stuff sort of, but like in terms of like the masses, like September 1st is, is the day it's, it's, it's the glorious celebration, you know, of, of <laughs> shotgun firing, you know, PR dollar raising. Mm -hmm. There it is. You and know? that's when you've got all those young birds yeah. in the system that are just now. Yeah. They're just dumb and flying around easy to shoot. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know. You know, uh, we can definitely see our harvest trail off in September, but we're getting a lot of people um, more and more every year. I think in uh, you know in our South Zone, we hunt all the way through at least like the third week of January. Yeah, and uh, you can have some. Uh, that's when honestly, I, I usually do maybe one or two hunts first week of September, and then if I don't really get a chance, I'll wait until January and I'll go down south, and sure. it's nice and cool. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sixty degrees outside, and you're not hunting with anybody around you. And you can have some amazing dove hunts. Now, do you you have a split season? We do. Yeah, like we do? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, not all the states have a split season. So um, our split season is September 1st to the 15th. Mm -hmm. And then the remainder of the season starts right around uh, Thanksgiving yeah. and runs into the first part of January. Yeah. Yeah, We. I mean, we have a north, central, and south zone. Uh, the north zone, we usually run September 1st through like early November. Sure. And so we try to front load the end because by the time you get to January, it's too cold up there yeah. to be really good hunting. Central zone's kind of in between uh, September 1st to like the end of October. We'll kick it back off around Christmas, maybe the week before, run it through mid-January. South zone can't start as early because of that whole, that whole history uh, there that we can talk about if you want. But um, So we typically start the regular season September 14th or mid-September. 
run through the end of October and then kick back up in December around Christmas and then go all the way as far as we can in January with all the days that we have. Right. And uh, most of our late hunting is all done in the south zone because um, that's where the birds are are late. But, man, you can have some really, well, really good hunts down there. Well, so have you noticed, and I'm sure you have, um, because it, it's – things are very different from your resident birds in the first season mm-hmm. and then the second season or after, after the migrators essentially, right. you know, what, what do you notice different about that second season with, with your birds there? Well, uh, birds are going to come in, they're going to, uh, be centered around cold fronts or, or weather. A lot of times, um, they're going to come in and if they find food, they're going to be on it until it's gone or at least it's not worth coming to anymore so when you find birds in the in the late season you get to do a lot more scouting you can't just go to a field that you think is going to be a good dove field and shoot birds you have to do a lot more scouting when you find them you better hunt them the next couple of days because they're not going to be there for much longer and so they'll bounce around a lot and uh it's it's tougher hunting but at the same time when you actually find them yeah you know there's no competition and you can get in there and yeah. You know, have, have a really good hunt. So I'll, I'll tell you the big difference in our birds on second season, the migrators. So the second season, the, the migrating birds, the birds that are coming here to stay, spend the winter here um, in Arizona, um, they're actually great basin birds. So you, you, you have to think completely differently. Our resident birds are Sonoran. They've, they've adapted to the Sonoran desert style environment. We have trees, right? roosting trees they go field out in the feed out in the fields i mean you know following particular flyways and stuff second season those birds don't act anything like the first season birds Mm -hmm. because they're great basin birds the great basin desert doesn't have trees the way the sonoran desert does right so guys will find that they'll run into tons of doves they'll flush them like quail off the ground oh wow the great basin birds spend more of their time on the ground because they don't hang out in trees all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so guys quail hunting all of a sudden will be flushing doves. Yeah. You know, and it's you're shooting doves like you're flushing quail out in the grasslands in southern Arizona and stuff. It's they're they're like a completely different bird. They don't have the same, you know, food water roost right. type things. The classic you know, dove. But field. you'll be out in the desert and you'll find like a water tank. You know, one of these one of these dirt tanks that fill with water for cattle and stuff, and you know, you see that kind of the beginning of the day or the end of the day, and you just see tons of birds flying there. Like, park yourself right there. Mm-hmm. You fa- you found Valhalla at that point, <laughs> but um, yeah, they're it's weird. They're spread out all across the desert in these grassy areas instead of being kind of in the in the riparian corridors and the trees and the farmland and stuff they don't like the farmland is worthless in the second season right it didn't matter what was growing so, so the great basin birds are probably the the ground nesting doves that you see yeah that you hear about all the time yeah they're, yeah. they're very very different yeah yeah and so it's it's like a completely different hunt hmm. you know when you when it gets second season because yeah they they come to arizona and they're like going oh well there's trees well we don't use those yeah we don't know so what those are do, yeah. yeah i mean it's it's yeah they're just it's a whole different experience that's cool yeah very that's, very strange that's really cool yeah what, you know I, I had a hunt last year um kind of the same thing there was this big i don't even know how big a couple hundred acre um milo field that had been that had been uh harvested already and they, they were running cattle out there and on one end of the field and there was kind of this creek that ran through and this guy's like, yeah, trust me, this is going to be amazing hunt. We get out there, and of course, there's birds like sitting on the gate when we pull up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to be awesome. And then we get set up, and there's like nothing, nothing flying. 
And I know there's birds around. There's got to be birds around. This much food, you know, there's, there's birds that were sitting on the power line, on the gate. And then I start looking, and I normally carry binoculars with me everywhere I go. And so I went back to the truck and got binoculars, and I started looking out in that field, and there were thousands, yeah. thousands out there feeding. And so, but, you know, we had no way to, like, kick them up, and they weren't flying anywhere. So uh, we ended up having a couple of guys run down and basically start shooting them back and forth to get them moving. But I, I would really like to do that that desert hunt on the ground. Oh, it's, it's, it's so Cause weird. It would be kind of like that. I think it just, it's, it's something very totally strange. different. Yeah. It's very, 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 very different. Um, I wanted to talk to you because, you know, um, as you and I both know, um, what's interesting to me about the history of dove decoys, right? Decoys go, dove decoys go pretty much all the way back you know, to the market hunting days. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can find these like really ultra expensive wood carved shorebirds, songbirds, you know, all that stuff. But dove decoys kind of hold a a special place for me because so there was, you know, carvers who were making them and then the factory kind of decoy system got set up, but mostly for ducks and doves were like an afterthought or a set. Like they always kind of had them, but they were like, I mean, I, I collect them. I mean, I've got some from the the the, the Dove decoy, D-U-V decoy company. Yeah, like they're they're beautiful. It's it's like that that kind of Art Deco period, where it's a it's a <laughs> it's a like a not a cardboard, but it's some kind of like pressed wood silhouette with a with a literal wooden clothespin attached to the yeah, bottom. Yeah, yeah. It, but they they had a paper drawing that was you know, glued to it that like was cartoonish, yeah. you know, and, and people were using them. And it's funny to me because duck hunters and goose hunters have explored how to use decoys in every imaginable way. I mean, you hear about, you know, being on the X and the J hook and the, and the U and the, you know, I mean, setting them up this way and congregating versus kind of spreading them out. You need some centuries, you need, you know, dove, People with dove decoys, like there's really no deep exploration right. into into the use of decoys. So for me, it's it's I love kind of collecting those old, you know, I've got the old paper mache ones, and I've got the wood silhouettes, and I've got you know some of these from the the era has gone by. Dove loads for shotguns have been around for a very long time. Um, I, mean, I have old I have old paper shells, yeah, um, of you know, boxes that say dove loads on them, yeah. you know, and, and really like that. But it really wasn't until the mojo came around the spinning wing decoy, the game changer, right. That all of a sudden people were like, cool, you know, like, cause it attracts them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got the, the flash and stuff. And, but even still, I watch people use decoys and it just seems like they still don't know what the hell they're doing. They no. just throw a mojo up yeah. and all that because, um, at least, for us, we're, we're, we're in white wing country, you know, um, white wings and, and morning doves feed differently, mm-hmm. you know, um, white wings are perch feeders. They actually like to eat directly off the plant. Morning doves prefer to eat the seeds that have fallen on the ground. And so for me, using decoys has been this like deep like exploration in the early season of, you know, if I can get to a wheat field, I'll take my decoys and I set them up actually like on the stocks and I've got like, I've got the lucky duck flapping wing one. I've got a mojo Mm -hmm. in there, but I've got other like clip on ones hanging on stocks. And I, I mean to tell you like when I first, like people don't believe me 
until they actually see it. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, cause they've never seen dove decoys work the right. way it like does for ducks. And you get a white wing set up in a field and this flock of white wings will come over and half of them fall out of the sky, like out of formation, <laughs> dropping in like mallards. Yeah. Just, I mean, like literally they're like, it's not like this, you know, they're, they're kind of that graceful kind of, Hey, I'm going to take a flyby look. They're literally like, here comes a, a flock and they're dropping like losing altitude, yeah. you know, wings back, you know, just yeah. falling straight down to be inside the decoys. Um, and so with morning doves, it's kind of like, okay, there's a ground setup or, or, you know, a fence line or a, you know, I mean, morning doves love that, that kind of something to like, if there's something to sit on, like a barbed wire fence right. above food, you'll have some on the barbed wire and some on the food. Mm. Always, always. It yeah. just seems like that. And so I try to like figure out the best, you know, decoy spread to, to sucker in morning doves, you know, and, and I've been playing with it enough where it's, it's like, you know, I won't use any spinning or motion on a, on a morning dove setup just cause I know how greedy, like everyone's yeah. like, Oh, morning doves are social. No, they're greedy. Yeah. If one dove is eating food, they all need to be eating food. Yeah. Oh my God. I got to get mine before he eats it all up. You know, <laughs> like yeah. that's why they're coming in. They're not, they're not like, Oh, let's, let's be friends. No, yeah. no, they're, they're greedy bastards. So I made it kind of my own little personal mission the past few years to, to not use mojos and to just yeah. play with my, my clip on decoys. And I don't know that I've figured anything out yet other than, you know, I, I like to, I, you know, I usually hunt around mesquite trees and snags and fences right. and things like that. So, you know, you put them on those, those places. Uh, I figured out you don't want the light to hit them. Cause I, I think it's kind of like they see the plastic or they see the, you know, whatever UV popping off. Right. So I, I usually tuck them back up in the tree and it seems to work better kind of in the shadows where they can still see the silhouette, they can still see the bird, the decoy, but it's not in the sunlight. Right. That seems to help. At least in my head it does. And then uh, definitely the ground, the ground. I, uh, I've got some Avery decoys yep. that, uh, that I've rigged to put on little sticks and kind of angle them down like they're feeding. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll just set them out. And having, having both of those, like you said, is, is the key. And I'll kind of sit in between them a little further back and it seems to work. Yeah. I mean, you can see, I mean, I'll see birds, you know, veer in. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I need to try the white wing thing. Yeah. I really want to try that. You know, and the other thing, I think I've discovered a little bit more information. Like, you know, when you're shooting morning doves and you take a pot shot at one and he like completely dodges. Yeah. He makes it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like he just flips around, does a ninja kick flip and, yep. you know, he's out of here. Um, so it turns out, um, bear with me on this one. Um, <laughs> that doves actually have more rods and cones in their eyes than we do. Um, and they have a field of vision that's approximately 340 degrees, mm-hmm. right? Al- almost a complete 360. The only place they can't see is just dead center yeah. behind them. They can see everywhere. But it turns out that, it, and I don't know if this is true in morning doves, but I know it is in pigeons now because they've done research on this the way the rods and cones are set up in their eyes, they actually have bifocal in both eyes. So they are actually can focus on two different points with each eye. So they're seeing like, like when we focus, we have one focus out of each eye. Right. Right. So we only have a, a 
you know, we, we can focus on something, but they can focus on two different things. Well, technically up to four, four. Yeah. Right. And <clears throat> so <clears throat> they also see it a faster frame rate right. than we do. I think that's all a lot of birds, most birds. Well, but so the, so if you can imagine, you know, the birds are not only looking out where they're flying, their other directional is down because mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're, they're flying. Right. So they're looking ahead, looking kind of for predators, but they're looking on the ground, looking for food, you know, that kind of stuff. But if you, I think their, their frame rate is like three times as fast as ours. So the processing speed. So as you shoot your shot at a bird, mm-hmm. They're processing that, like, you know how, like, we can kind of see the water, the shot yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Three times as much. Now, three times, it, imagine, like, you know, you're doing a slow mo video, right? It, running like 80 to 100 frames a second and then slowing it down to our rate of speed, right? It, which is right around 24. You know, yeah. they can actually see the shot coming sometimes because of, you know, sun direction or light or whatever. And it's, it's so fast. They're processing at that faster rate of speed that that's how they flip out of your they, way. They really are dodging. They really are. It's not just like they can that see I'm a bad the shot, shot coming. No, like they, <laughs> and because of the, you know, their, their wings shape and tail. Right. And, they can, yeah. Very maneuverable. You know, yeah. Yeah. Very agile. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I know. So there's research on pigeons. Yeah. On this. Yeah. Okay. That that's like, because so, and not like, so this was wood pigeons in Europe, yeah, um, which are a very big bird. Um, but yeah, apparently because of that, that bifocal in each eye, you know, ability and the, and the faster frame rate that they, because wood pigeons will dodge shot yeah, as well. And it made me start, I was like, maybe that's what's going on with morning doves. Yeah. Like, you know, I was reading up on wood pigeons. Like, I'm like, oh man, this is crazy. Like they <laughs> literally, it isn't just like a, a chance happening. Yeah. You know, oh, it's just a coincidence. He just, you know, because sometimes they just do it out of whatever, you know, I mean, I've seen morning doves just, you just know, cooking flip, along yeah. and then flip for no reason. Yeah. Maybe they see, but maybe it's a bug or, I mean, yeah. something freaks them out. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, they, they literally are, you know pulling the matrix yeah. of dodging bullets. So they really are, man, <laughs> man, that, yeah, that changes my whole, like, so I'm not that bad of a shot. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> so what it they, comes down to, they literally are, are dodging. Shot. It's, it was, it was really cool to kind of see a lot of that research on wood pigeons and, you know, kind of think about the similarities of more. I mean, like, it's gotta be the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, that they, uh, cause I looked for research on morning doves in that particular area and there just isn't anything yeah. um, to that level you know, where they were really looking at vision and eyesight right. and, and all that stuff. Cause it's like it, some species, I think we just kind of, you know, take for granted on, yeah. on that. But well, you know, I think doves in general, we do. Oh yeah. Because I, I get questions all the time from hunters that I've never thought of. And I'm like, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. And I don't know that anybody does because nobody's looked at it. Yeah. Um, so, so that makes me think, okay, well, if they can potentially dodge a shot, you know, how much faster or slower would uh, your shot have to be to be more effective, right? So, like, if you're, if you're shooting higher brass or, or more of a high-speed load, is that that extra couple hundred feet per second 
does that really matter? Well, I think it's how quickly they spot it. Yeah. You know, because it, not every, not, not in every instance, I think they can see no, it. No, it's gotta be just right. The, the light, light, the direction. Yeah. But I mean, like they can literally be flying, you know, like a left to right shot. They're, they're out in front of you. They're flying straight across from you. They're looking out, but they're also kind of looking down. Mm-hmm. I mean, so imagine, imagine being able to focus, you know, on the bird in front of you and the ground at the same time, like with laser, precision the right. way like we you know our predator eyes you know right. like or are, are so so if something two, moves across the focus so if something's plane. coming up at you you know and especially because you're processing way more frames than we right. are you know quicker it's like oh there's something sh- yeah you know just a reaction way. yeah yeah so maybe bigger spread yeah, more open choke. Which is which is what I yeah, I don't know. These are these are interesting questions. Now that I know that they might actually be dodging the shot, sure. they're not just reacting to it. Yeah. Cuz I I was just assumed, you know, I was missing because I just missed, you know, like everybody does, and that that they maybe saw the flash, they heard the noise, they mm-hmm. just react and move. But the fact they're that they they might the actually see in the shot and process coming that, their way. Yeah. Man, that's mind-blowing. I'm just amazed at like the reaction time. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so I told you before I used to work on, on shorebirds. Yeah. So we had this net as a cannon net, you know, like a lot like a rocket net, but, uh, very fast. And it was a small little self-contained box that we would, uh, bury on the beach facing out towards the water. And when we had these shorebirds that we wanted to catch, we would, to use an English term, we would twinkle them. Right. So you basically just walk them up. Uh, to the area that you want in front of the net and you kind of push them, you know, walk towards them and, and kind of twinkle them that way. And whenever they get in front of the net, you'd fire it off. And what it does, it use, uses black powder to shoot these projectiles out to carry the net out over the bird. Right. Super fast. I mean, this thing, you know, it'll kill you if you're in front of it. it, it it's a blink of an eye kind of thing. Yeah. And we would, we would take videos because we would miss birds, especially like these little piping plovers. And we noticed we would only miss when the wind was blowing hard enough up or down the beach. And so what would happen is the net's going out towards the water. And if the wind's blowing up or down the beach, kind of perpendicular, those birds would react so fast and we would catch it on camera and slow it down. They would basically, as soon as that thing would fire, they would already have their wings out and would just catch that wind and out from underneath that net. Right. And you wouldn't see it with a naked eye, but that's how fast, I mean, before the net even really clears Yep. the the box i mean just so fast well that's why they talked about how rocket nets are not as effective for morning doves right it's the same type of thing because right. you could have gobs of them mm-hmm. and you would catch just a small fraction because they would actually get out from underneath the yep. net before anything you know yep so i've experimented with whoosh nets yep. i don't know if you use those um but i really want to make a small shorebird like the size that i was using for shorebirds we were using would be perfect for morning doves. Catch 15 or 20 at a time. And it's fast enough. I think if you could get them in a, you know, around that pile of bait, and those, all those little greedy doves, little pigs, <laughs> eating a pile of bait, you know, in a small enough circle and your net's big enough, you'd catch them all. Yeah. And so uh, that's kind of my goal soon, maybe not this year, but by next year to have a little experimental cannon net, see if we can catch them that way. Yeah. That way we're not catching two or three in each little walk-in trap like we talked about yeah i can get them all done in one day just knock them out yeah <laughs> well and, and i'll have to bring it down to arizona so you can see the hand trap um the the high volume trap so, where where it's you know it's it's a dog run 
okay. it's a dog kennel with like aviary netting on it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, when you step into that cage with like a hundred plus birds <laughs> at one time and you have to process, it's yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah. I, there's some pictures uh, uh, from probably back in the seventies and eighties where we used to have some of those setups yeah. on, on some of our WMAs where we had, uh, you know, banding stations that were there every year, you know, year after year, they'd set those big things up and, and there's a picture of a biologist in there that's got doves on his shoulder, perched on his head, you know, kind of like the, the dove guru. That'd be cool. Processing. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts on doves? We've been, we've been going at it for quite a while tonight. I'm sure oh. the listeners are just bored to tears with us. Yeah. I feel like we barely talked about doves. Barely. Yeah. I know. <laughs> well, we'll we talk- started and ended there. Yeah. We'll that's be talking about way. doves the next couple of days here with the task force. But, uh, no, no, it's good to see you, man. It's good to, to, now that COVID's over, well, whatever, now that we're meeting again. Absolutely. Uh, really good to see everybody and, and get to see you. And I'm looking forward to our discussions. And and uh, we definitely need to make a, a cross-Texas-Arizona trip happen. An exchange program. An exchange program, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we need to make that happen. We'll, we'll try and convince them. Yeah. Um, see, yeah, we're, we're t- I'm taking the season off. I'm going to go into an opener <laughs> in another state. <laughs> see how that goes over. Yeah. Well, I, I think I can afford to come to Arizona early, and you can come after, you know, because our south zone doesn't start till September 14th. Oh, that's true. So at that point, you know, I'll hunt over there for a couple of weeks. You come over to Texas for a couple of weeks. That's right. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it, we'll, 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 ex, we'll show each other the exchange of clouds. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You'll see a, a different, a different group of white wings yeah. than, you're, than you're used to. Yeah. Very true. Yeah, you'll you'll see a, a different affect of <laughs> Arizona as well. So, well, folks, Owen, thanks for being on. Absolutely, my I, pleasure. I appreciate you. Um, stay tuned for another episode coming up. I appreciate you guys as well. Um, thanks very much.